Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can follow me on Twitter, at ChestermanKate, for more information about the new podcasts and study groups as they become available. In May 2022, as part of something we're calling Chronic Conditions Month, there is a series of seven webinars with live Q&A sessions, each focusing on a different long-term condition. The webinars, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to provide wide-ranging clinical education programme, focusing not only on the diagnosis and management of different chronic conditions, but also on the strategies required to address the complex and challenging interplay between coexisting morbidities. Healthcare professionals in the UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining. And to accompany the webinars, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which they provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the last of these special episodes now. This one is brought to you by Dr Rob Hampton and Dr Peter Bagshaw, who will finish this series of chronic disease podcasts by discussing the prescribing of medicines associated with dependence. Hello, I'm Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset CCG Lead for Mental Health, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Rob Hampton, a GP who's uh, working in drug and alcohol services and has previously worked in pain clinics. Welcome to our podcast, which comes to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2022, which is taking place throughout May. This includes a whole string of interactive and informative webinars designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions across a range of therapeutic areas. Today in this podcast, we're going to be discussing the new NICE guidelines for pain. So Rob, tell us what the guidelines are and what the implications are for us as GPs. Okay, and thank you, Peter, for the introduction and delighted to see you again and contribute to this annual series of podcasts. Um, and last year, we actually focused a lot more on the chronic pain guidelines that uh, were published um, in the spring of last year. Um, I'm going to match and relate those to what we can expect from uh, a closely related guideline. Um, and that is around uh, the management of medications associated with dependence or that could cause withdrawal symptoms within our prescribing. So we're talking about the, uh, all the opioids uh, benzodiazepines and Z drugs, um, and uh, t- you know, touching on to maybe antipsychotics as being a, an issue in raised prescribing and gabapentinoids. I was going to ask about gabapentin because that, they're a group of drugs who, when they were first introduced, seemed to be fairly benign. But I think we we've increasingly come to recognise their addictive potential, haven't we? Indeed, I, I, I think I went to a talk by a psychiatrist who said this is the new diazepam because in fact it works in a very similar area of the brain and induces the same sort of chemistry. Um, and therefore um, <clears throat> it seems it's going to have the same kind of uh, addictive, well, it seems to be having the same addictive potential 
uh, and, and uh, potential for withdrawal symptoms um, that the benzos do as well. Absolutely. And we've all got patients who have gradually gone up uh, what we used to call the, uh, the analgesic bladder and have reached the top rung and are still not pain controlled. Uh, so this is a very difficult group of drugs often to de-escalate, isn't it? It is. And I think the reason for this rise in prescribing, uh, well, there's two factors feeding into this. The first is uh, that the World Health Organization pain ladder you described um, gave a pathway towards uh, matching pain with medication. Um, and I think that had been a framework for many years and left uh, you know, several people on, the, uh, on, this, on these medications without really understanding uh, the, the potential harm they can do. And the fact that um, for people with non-cancer pain, chronic non-cancer pain, their, their effectiveness is questionable um, you know, beyond uh, acute rescue type um, episodes of care. So once you're on them, they, in fact, they're not very effective. Opioids, bizarrely, uh, once you've been on them for a period of time, in fact, you can feel pain more because you get this um, sensitization effect from being on opioids long term. So you're on an addictive medication, and you know, how many of us can say that the people on high doses of pregabalin uh, and uh, opioids are actually pain-free and thriving? They tend not to be. That's our experience from day to day. So there's the issue. And these guidelines um, try to address recognizing those factors now and moving beyond that. I did say there were two things. I think the second issue is when you look at the prescribing of these addictive medications, they match um, almost entirely the prevalence of chronic pain and the, pre um, the prevalence of deprivation within the UK and in fact in all Western countries. So there's something about um, the, the symptoms that people who are in distress, who are vigilant, uh, who are always on their guard uh, because their lives are probably um, problematic in many ways, these are the people who end up on these medications. And I remember a talk in our chronic conditions uh, series a, a couple of years ago where somebody was saying it's a bit like a car alarm and that it's useful. You need the car alarm to go off if you're being burgled, but the, for people with chronic pain, they've got this car alarm sounding all the time. So on the, they're on this state of high alert. I don't know if you find that a, a useful metaphor. Yes, it's one I've, I've come across before. It's one I've used. Um, I think when, it's coming, when I'm coming to try and explain chronic pain to people and why these medications probably aren't working in the best way, I've moved over actually to really try and um, get people to understand what sensitization means. Because sensitization as a biochemical construct is one that really um, has credence now uh, in pretty much all the literature for people with chronic pain conditions um, that aren't cancer-based or aren't obviously anatomically based, shall I say, for people with the so-called primary pain conditions. And the way I describe sensitization to people is that um, through a number of reasons, probably the um, you know, the, the, whatever it was that triggered your pain off and the consequences of that pain, your body has become more sensitized to all sorts of things, um, including, uh, you know, you, often people with chronic pain will be more sensitive to sound, to light, irritable bowel, um, you know, irritable bladder symptoms, and your body is sensitized. It's on edge all the time. Um, and chronic pain is part of that. The alarm's twitchy, as you say. 
Um, and so I think because sensitization is a, is a biochemical construct, it often, I find, it gets people to buy into the idea that perhaps medications aren't the only answer to this um, uh, because, um, you know, your body's functioning in a certain way that I now recognize and we know is scientific. So you've described the problem really well. And I, I think that's a, a really interesting way of thinking about things. And I, I think it's really important that you've also said that things like uh, cancer pain are excluded from any attempt at reducing medication, because that's very important. Um, so having described the problem, I'm sure NICE comes up with a, a short, pithy, easy solution for us all, doesn't it? So perhaps you can tell us what that is. Okay. Now, these are guidelines in development, but as we all know, that we can be certain that 90, 95% of the outcome will be similar to the guidance we have so far. Broadly speaking, there are three areas. Firstly, caution when actually starting um, medications that we know have addictive potential. The second is much better um, short-term follow-up to see if these medications are effective for people within the first sort of four to six weeks of trying them. And if they're not, looking at other options. And I think the third part of it is when people have been on these uh, medications long-term, strategies to begin to um, you know, work with our patients collaboratively to say, maybe it's time to think about coming off these. How are we going to help you to do that? Um, now, while the first, I think, is probably part of most GPs' mainstream practice now, we identify these medications are ones we wouldn't want people to be on for a long time. The second, that immediate feedback, evaluation and altering management, or the third part, which is coming off these things, that's where I guess we find um, uh, our practice more difficult. And this echoes very much the draft NICE guidelines on antidepressants, where they, they talk in very similar ways. And in those, it does give us some actual practical advice on how long to taper down medication for. Do, do the pain guidelines in NICE give the same sort of practical advice for us? The guidelines we have so far don't. Uh, I would actually uh, draw colleagues to um, maybe a couple of resources uh, that are out there that can help with that. Um, the, uh, the pain faculty of the Royal College of Anaesthetists has an opioids aware section and they have a good, um, they, they talk about reducing doses by about 10% every one or two weeks, um, uh, you know, throughout a duration. And there's also some good um, uh, guidance about uh, reducing benzodiazepines. And I think the, uh, with benzos in particular, it's about actually just working with the patient to do this slowly. You know, don't aim to, for someone to be off things in two or three weeks, unless you're in a secure environment or a drug and re alcohol rehab environment. But in primary care, normal general practice, you know, aim for 12 to 20 weeks for somebody to be off their medication, and that way you'll probably have more success. So I think at the moment the draft guidelines don't have that, um, but I'd hope they have some pointers to that, but if they don't, there are resources elsewhere. And that's pushing six months, so that's a lot longer than I think most of us would uh, aim to titrate people down, isn't it? Possibly, but I think particularly, the, the, you know, the, the withdrawal effects from, uh, you know, of all the medications I deal with in my day-to-day -day drug and alcohol rehab, the one that I just find m the most problematic is uh, diazepam, benzodiazepines. And so even as a, an inpatient now, I won't detox somebody off those for less, you know, less than about four weeks because the, the withdrawal symptoms are so acute and the, a lot 
um, less predictable they might be from alcohol, for example, and they seem to go on for longer. Um, and I include opioids with that. Op opioid um, uh, withdrawal symptoms are a lot more predictable, and you can follow those through in a shorter time scale than benzodiazepines. So benzos are the ones, if there's any of these that I'd say, think long, uh, start low, go slow, it's benzos. Yeah, that's a, always a good motto, isn't it? So this tends to be, to me anyway, quite a tricky group of patients. And as, as you say, often the original pain hasn't gone away. And, and often they've got a new set of symptoms on top of it because of the sensitization you described. So how can we support people? What can we offer in place of the medication that we're now trying to wean them off, even though they don't feel better? Well, I think it starts off um, with uh, just being absolutely honest with people and maybe uh, you know, admitting that perhaps our profession hasn't helped you by leaving you on this for the past three, four years. But we do recognise now um, that unless you're telling me that life is fantastic and you are completely pain-free and functioning well, but if you're still suffering um, with the symptoms, despite being all of this, then we can be, and the research is, you know, proves this, that we, if we taper you down, uh, maybe start with the idea of reducing your dose of whatever it is. Um, if we reduce you down, there's a really good chance that your symptoms, if we do it slowly, will actually not get worse. So that's the first step. Maybe don't say, right, we've got to stop this, but why don't we reduce this? Because we know the addictive potential and the harm it can cause now, maybe didn't really understand it ourselves uh, so well a few years ago. If we get you down to a, a level at which, um, you know, you maybe will start feeling better because you're off them because of all the sedative and cognitive effects and, you know, the physical side effects these can have, that might be a good first step towards coming off them. And of course, the second thing is, what, you know, what is the symptom that's causing this and trying to find alternative routes. And I think both with chronic pain and maybe to a lesser extent anxiety, it's so clear that non-pharmaceutical approach, a, a reconditioning desensitization approach is good. And um, I, I tend to uh, sort of signpost people to resources that will help them understand what I'm saying before maybe making the reduction. And can I uh, make a shameless plug for a resource that I'm involved with, which is the Sunset Emotional Wellbeing podcast, which is available to everybody, not just uh, residents of Somerset. And we're always talking about um, alternative ways to improve anxiety and exercise, being out in nature, mindfulness, those sort of things. We've just done one on emotional logic. So, yes, there, I'm sure there are lots of other excellent podcasts out there as well. I says the three sites for pain I would be going to is there's one called Flipping Pain, uh, one called, uh, versus arthritis has a number of resources, um, and Live Well with Pain uh, it would be a third, and that has a specific um, focus on opioids. Um, and if people want to understand chronic pain, Tame the Beast is another good. In fact, there's four. I said three, but there's Tame the Beast is an excellent one for people to understand pain. So in other words to try and share an understanding of where we're coming from before making the action. So this is something that will take a few consultations. Uh, and for every one or two people that you, you know, you get on your side, there will be several, probably more, where you don't get them on your side as a collaborative approach to an altered way of management. But if we look at all the other things that we do uh, when dishing out pills and potions and injections, you know, if you can get my, my, my sort of gut feeling on this or my experience has been for every five people you speak to about this, one will engage with you on the first or second consultation. Now, 
that doesn't sound very many, but if you compare it to everything else we do, that a number needed to recover is pretty good. Number needed to treat is good. It is absolutely. And um, you mentioned antipsychotics, which stand apart, don't they? Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I suppose this this is coming more and more out of my out of my uh, actual uh, drug and alcohol specialist work across two centres. Um, we're seeing the rise in a number of things, but one is that people, uh, particularly people with a personality disorder spectrum type problem, are on huge doses of um, the newer antipsychotics, uh, specifically, I think, particularly ketiapine, I think, being top of the list. Um, And uh, that's another medication where it's not part of the, the class or scheduling system. So it's not, at the moment, regarded as a, an addictive medication. But my experience, and obviously your uh, specialty is mental health, or your experience, but when you try and reduce ketiapine, um, people react badly. They get very anxious. They, they, their sleep is affected. And for the, because of the nature of the problems that aren't psychosis, where they are prescribed, emotional um, lability, uh, um, and uh, you know anxiety of course when you get those symptoms uh, it's hard to then persuade people to carry on with the reduction it's a tricky one absolutely and we know of course that antipsychotics um, cause massive obesity and actually the newer antipsychotics even more than the traditional ones and that they play a big part in the 20-year premature mortality in serious mental illness so I'm, I'm absolutely with you on, on that and again um, if people have a personality disorder, there are very effective talking therapies. Uh, DBT and CAT are the two uh, best recognised, but there are lots of others as well. So again, I think we should be trying to avoid drugs in this group as much as possible. Indeed. And I suppose the the, you know, the one area where I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reasonably confident that uh, our, prim- our colleagues in primary care will be able to make changes you know, immediately when these nice guidelines comes out, initiating less. Now, fortunately, with ketiapine, we're not allowed to initiate it within primary care, or we're advised not to. Um, but the other medications, I think, will really try and, and uh, you know, initiate less. In fact, the, the, the opioid um, curve, which has gone up by a factor of four, I think, in a short space of time, about 10 years, is now levelling off, and benzos is going down. So there are already changes in our prescribing pattern, uh, but antipsychotics and um, the gabapentinoids are going up at the moment, and they're still going up. Um, but I think the point is that, uh, that that initiation, I think we'll get that. It's a question is, what do we do when, you know, to, to monitor and then de-prescribe when that's appropriate? Absolutely. Well, sadly, we're, we're running out of time, Rob. It's been really nice catching up with you again. And I've learned a lot from you, and I, I hope our listeners have as well. Um, do you want to just remind us of those three uh, addresses that you gave earlier uh, for people once they finish listening to all 50 episodes of the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast? Okay. So these are patient resources. Uh, flippinpain.co.uk, versusarthritis.org, tamethebeast.org. I'm going to put four in there. Live well with pain is the other one. Um, and then for, for, for guiding you as professionals, it would be the Faculty of Pain um, Opioids Aware site uh, that gives you some ideas of how do I go about uh, de-prescribing. 
Fantastic. Well, that's been really, really helpful and uh, certainly something I, I will use in, in daily practice. I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you very much, Rob, for your wisdom. And thank you all for listening. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to register on the Chronic Conditions website so that you can listen to other podcasts in the series. And for our interactive webcast brought to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2022, you can sign up at chroniconditions.co.uk. Thank you again.